There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, Hey, welcome aboard. In an episode of The Simpsons, Homer believes he has been poisoned by a chemical after eating fugu. What chemical are we talking about? So, what chemical poisoned Homer supposedly after eating fugu? And uh, another question for you. Back in 1902, Dr. Harvey Wiley uh who was chief chemist of the Bureau of Chemistry, Division of the Department of Agriculture, organized what came to be called the Poison Squad. What was that? So what did Dr. Harvey Wiley organize back in 1902 called the Poison Squad? What was the Poison Squad? If you know the answer to one of those questions or to both, 514-790-0800 is the number to call along with any question that you might have in the world of science. And, of course, you can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. Passover is coming up this week, so I thought that I would uh, regale you with my usual Passover story. Let's get going. Can you imagine eating 78 matzo balls in eight minutes? That's about 4,000 calories and 2,700 milligrams of cholesterol. Well, Joey Chestnut accomplished that monumental feat. And I was back in 2008 at the inaugural World Matzo Ball Eating Championship. But Joey, of course, is a professional. He eats for a living. As a competitive eater, he holds numerous records. And, of course, the most famous one being the one for Nathan's Hot Dogs. 76, I think it is, downing those in 10 minutes. It seems, though, that matzo balls were a tough challenge because Joey has passed over trying to better his record. So what are matzo balls anyway? There are no matzas out there galloping around protecting their family jewels from Jewish cooks. To make matzo balls, you need eggs, chicken fat, salt, and, of course, matzo meal, which is made by grinding up matzo. Their recipe is galore online, so it's easy to give it a go. Matzah is a type of unleavened bread that is central to the celebration of Passover. Just mix flour with water, knead the dough for no more than 18 minutes, roll it into a flat sheet, and bake. Why the 18-minute limit? Because after that time, naturally occurring yeast in the dough can start the leavening process, which must be avoided, to conform to the story of the Exodus, as told in the Bible. Okay, I'll give you a quick recap. According to the biblical account, sometime around 1700 BC, the Canaanite Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers, who were jealous of him because he was his father's favorite son. Famously, Joseph's father Jacob had gifted him with a beautiful multicolored coat, much to the annoyance of his brothers. A colored coat? How did they do that in those days? Actually, the dyeing of fabrics dates back to well over 5,000 years, with natural occurring substances being used. The roots of the turmeric plant yielded yellow, madder root produced red, and indigo leaves were a source of blue. 
Joseph, who apparently had an aptitude for interpreting dreams, managed to endear himself to the Pharaoh to the extent that he and his descendants, the Hebrews of the Bible, came to play important roles in Egyptian society. But with the passing of years, they were seen by the rulers to present a threat to their power and eventually were enslaved and forced into manual labor, especially making bricks for construction. Bricks were made of mud, poured into molds and strengthened with straw, much like concrete today is reinforced with steel. A later pharaoh, perhaps Ramses II, so feared the slaves that he decreed boys born to them had to be drowned. And so begins the story of Moses, who was saved from drowning in the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter, arose to become a prince of Egypt until he was summoned by God to lead his people out of slavery. The stubborn Pharaoh would not let his slaves go, even after Moses demonstrated God's power by having his staff turn into a snake at Pharaoh's feet. After all, his magicians could also accomplish the same trick. How? Well, one theory is that some snakes clasped on the neck become catatonic and can take on the appearance of a rod until they are released. Ah, that sounds a bit snake-oilish. In any case, after God unleashed the ten plagues culminating in the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, the Pharaoh finally gave in. Hebrews were told to mark their dwellings with the blood of lambs so the angel of death would pass over their homes and spare their sons. This, of course, is the origin of Passover. The Pharaoh, devastated by the death of his own son, finally allowed Moses to lead his people out of Egypt into the wilderness. They quickly packed up their belongings to leave as fast as possible, fearing the Pharaoh would change his mind. They left with such speed that the dough they had been preparing to make bread did not have time to rise and had to be quickly baked into a type of flat bread, which of course is the origin of matzah, central to the celebration of Passover. I don't subscribe to the joke that cardboard was invented so that there would be something to which matzah could be compared. I actually like it. No sodium, no sugar, a good dose of fiber, put a little butter on it, and it goes great with coffee. The pharaoh did indeed change his mind and pursued the slaves until God intervened with a pillar of flame and parted the Red Sea, allowing the Hebrews to pass. The pursuing Egyptians drowned as the sea closed in on them. Moses then led his people through the desert for 40 years, received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and passed the torch to Joshua, who led the former slaves to the Promised Land. So goes the story. Historically, there's no record of any Hebrew slavery in Egypt, and the Egyptians were meticulous about keeping records. Neither is there any archaeological evidence of wandering through the desert for 40 years by more than 600,000 men and their families, as the Bible describes. Such an astounding number of wanderers would have surely left some fragments of pottery or tools behind. Some accounts even infer that the pyramids were built by Hebrew slaves. That is definitely not correct. Those magnificent structures were built at least 400 years before the story of the Exodus, which is said to have been around 1200 BC. The limestone blocks were hauled into place by an army of laborers, not slaves, and fitted together ingeniously with mortar made of calcium sulfate and sand. Does it matter that the historical account of the Exodus may not be factual? Well, 
Uh, not really, not to me. It's a wonderful story of liberation from the yoke of slavery, a metaphor that can be applied to many aspects of modern life. Slavery can be literal, political, or economic. You can also be a slave to drugs, potentially harmful ideologies, or to conspiratorial thinking. Well, although I'm not very observant and I do not think the Red Sea actually parted or that Moses' staff turned into a snake, I do enjoy celebrating Passover. Why? Because commemorating the story of Exodus, whether factual or metaphorical, represents a triumph of right over wrong and reminds us to be constantly vigilant about those who would enslave us one way or another. Well, as they Matzah balls go. I think Joey Chestnut's record is safe. <laughs> I think maybe I can, oh, maybe manage four or five. Uh, I think that's going to be about my limit. But you know what? You really don't have to be Jewish to enjoy matzah balls. <laughs> so uh, whoever you are, give them a try and enjoy them. And of course, to uh, all of our uh, Jewish listeners, uh, Happy Passover. So there is a, a quick little encapsulation for you of the biblical account of the uh, Exodus. And again, uh, whether it's historical or metaphorical, I don't think that it really matters. What matters is that it is a time to celebrate liberation from whatever may be oppressing and a time to get together with families. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Well, I see that we have a lot of Simpsons fans out there because I got correct answers about my question, Homer eating uh, fugu and uh, what he was poisoned with. And, of course, the answer is tetrodotoxin. Anyway, I'm I'm not surprised that people are uh, out there enjoying Simpsons because uh, it is the longest-running American animated series. Apparently, it's also the longest-running American sitcom, if you call it a sitcom. Uh, It first started in 1989. So Homer has been with us for a very long time. Okay, let's get to the heart of that story. Uh, Tetrodotoxin, it's an extremely potent and heat-stable neurotoxin. It functions by blocking the passage of sodium ions through cell membranes. And those ions play a critical role in the transmission of nerve impulses and interfering with their activity results in signals from nerves not being transmitted to muscles. Should tetrodotoxin enter the human bloodstream, it causes almost immediate numbness of the lips and tongue, progressing quickly to overall muscle paralysis. And uh, death comes from asphyxiation as muscles needed for lung function are paralyzed. The puffer fish gets its name from an ability to inflate its body like a balloon when threatened, exposing sharp tetrodotoxin-loaded spikes on its skin. Should a predator not be deterred by the spikes and attempt to make a meal of the fish, it likely will be its last one. Humans are also puffer predators, since the flesh of the fish is regarded as an exotic delicacy, especially in Japan. The preparation of fugu, as the puffer fish dish is known, has to be done very carefully to ensure that 
all the toxin-containing parts are scrupulously removed. Chefs are carefully trained and have to prove their competence by eating a fugu dish they have themselves prepared before allowed to serve diners in a restaurant. Thanks to the extensive training, restaurant accidents now are very infrequent but do occasionally occur. Witness the misadventure of Homer Simpson, star of uh, The Simpsons. Homer becomes a victim of fugu poisoning when he is served fish improperly prepared by an apprentice who is pressed into service while the master chef engages in sexual exploits behind the restaurant. When told he has 22 hours to live, Homer goes through the five stages of grief, but luckily survives, as some people do. Uh, of course, as it turns out, he wasn't really eating any toxic fugu in the first place. Anyway, James Bond, Ian Fleming's famous secret agent, also makes it through a bout with tetrodotoxin, but he needs a little help from science. In Fleming's novel, From Russia with Love, Bond is in a fight with a Russian agent who is wearing a boot that can flash out a small blade coated with tetrodotoxin. A quick kick to Bond's shin, and the novel ends with the reader left hanging about whether 007 survives or not. Only in the next novel, Dr. No, do we learn that Bond received immediate artificial respiration, which is critical if someone is to survive tetrodotoxin. Then a physician diagnosed him with curare poisoning and administered appropriate treatment. And here Fleming science can be called into question. Curare is a neurotoxin that is extracted from a vine that grows in the jungles of South America and has a history of being used as a poison on arrows. Like tetrodotoxin, it is a neurotoxin, but works by a different mechanism. Tubocurarin, the active ingredient, produces paralysis by blocking the action of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. This can be reversed with drugs, such as physostigmine, which inactivate acetylcholinesterase, the enzyme that normally degrades acetylcholine. As a result, levels of acetylcholine increase sufficiently to displace curare from receptors. However, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors would not work in the case of tetrodotoxin poisoning, since acetylcholine is not involved. There's actually no antidote to tetrodotoxin poisoning. Apparently, Bond was not faced by his close encounter with death because in uh, You Only Live Twice, he is seen happily dining on fugu. So now you have the backstory to Homer and uh, his encounter with Fugu. But uh, now I'm still looking for an answer to my second question about the Poison Squad. What was that, which was originally initiated by Dr. Harvey Wiley uh, back in 1902? So if you know the answer, give us a call, 514-790-800, or you can text us to 514-800. You know, I, I don't, uh, I don't really look at TikTok. Uh, and, uh, as you know, many government agencies and now universities, including us here at McGill, uh, discourage the use of TikTok. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but supposedly it gathers information in, in, in a manner that isn't, uh, uh, totally, uh, acceptable. But even though I am, uh, no, 
cognizant of I'm not cognizant really of, of the goings on in, in, in TikTok. Uh I do get all kinds of uh, emails sent to me and notices uh, that refer to things that people have seen on TikTok and asking me whether or not there's any validity to them. Uh, so I kind of do get a feel for what is going on in TikTok world. And apparently right now, onions are making the rounds uh, with the claim that drinking onion water uh, which is made by slicing raw onions, placing them in a jar of with water, letting them soak overnight in the fridge. And the idea is that you drink this onion-infused water uh, for your health, that is supposed to boost your immune system. Uh, it's curative for the common cold. And um, sort of the inference, if you read between the lines, is that this is also a remedy or at least a protective against uh, COVID. Well, needless to say, uh, there is no scientific evidence for onion water uh, preventing the common cold. Now, of course, uh, what is so often the case is that uh, people who promote such ideas will... Uh, you know, take uh, some smidgen of scientific fact and then just blow it up. Well, uh, yeah, onions do contain a number of interesting organosulfur compounds, things like quercetin and allicin. And um, there have been a number of studies on these uh, compounds in the laboratory. Uh, for example, in a Petri dish, yes, they will inhibit uh, viral replication. Uh, they act as antioxidants. But there are literally hundreds of substances that will do that in the in the laboratory. Uh, interesting enough, though, that in this particular case, they, the compounds that they talk about, which supposedly are so beneficial, are hardly soluble in water. So it really doesn't make any sense soaking the onions in, in water. It would make much more sense to saute the onions in a little bit of olive oil because these beneficial compounds are much more soluble in fatty substances like olive oil. So there uh, it is, uh, I guess, more conceivable that there could be some sort of uh, uh, benefit. But again, uh, obviously, there's no real evidence uh, for this. But uh, you know that uh, many, many recipes, especially the ones that, you know, I normally uh, cook, which have, you know, Hungarian origin, the recipes always start with uh, sauté onions uh, until they are translucent. And then you normally go on and add the other components, whether it be, you know, chicken or, or just uh, uh, vegetables. But again, I'm not going to say that there's uh, any significant benefit there. And neither am I going to say the same thing about paprika. Uh, even though I can tell you that there are numerous studies that have been done on paprika in the laboratory, in, in, in Petri dishes, that can show antioxidant effects and other therapeutic potential. But uh, I eat it because I like the taste. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check what uh, CTV News is all about and be right back. You know, because I so often tell you that our office at McGill, the Office for Science and Society, has a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, fact from myth. 
and we will be doing that on May 11th. Uh, we're going to present a film called Virulent, The Vaccine War. It's a really, really neat movie. And we are not only going to present this movie, but we will have a discussion after the film with the producers of the movie. They'll be uh, flying in from California, and we're going to have, uh, I think, uh, a pretty exciting discussion about the uh, ups and downs of the vaccine and the anti-vaccine movements. May 11th is when it will happen and uh, uh, will be in the evening. It is free, of course. We don't charge for our programs, but we do ask you to register so we know how many people will be coming. Uh, the film will be presented uh, at McGill in uh, Moise Hall, which is really a beautiful theater. And... Um, uh, we do need to know roughly how many people will be attending. So how do you register? You go to our website, which is uh, mcgill.ca slash OSS. So mcgill.ca slash OSS. And uh, as soon as you go there, you will immediately see uh, a little red thing where it says on it, register for the screening and uh, simple enough to do. I think it's going to be a very exciting evening, and uh, there'll be a lot of interesting revelations that come uh, come out of it. Okay, I still have my question out there about uh, Dr. Harvey Wiley's Poison Squad. The question is, what was that Poison Squad? Seven, nine, seven, Five one four seven nine zero zero eight hundred is the number to call, or five one four eight hundred for the text. Now, uh, this morning uh, on the trivia show, as I always do, I asked a question, and the question was, "What family of chemicals links Robert Billet? He's the lawyer who was featured in the movie Dark Waters to Coca-Cola's Simply Tropical Juice." Well, therein lies, of course, an interesting story. And the answer is the notorious perfluoroalkyl substances, abbreviated as PFAS. And uh, this is really, um, you know, it's a fascinating story, and it's still uh, kind of an evolving story. And uh, there was a gentleman in the U.S., Joseph Lorenz, who filed a lawsuit against Coca-Cola, uh, alleging that the juice, which is labeled as natural, uh, isn't what it is claimed to be. The sense that it isn't natural because it contains undeclared perfluoroalkyl substances. Now, when you read the label on this juice, it says pure filtered water, pineapple juice, cane sugar, mango puree, lemon juice, and natural flavors. And of course, there's no mention of any synthetic perfluoroalkyl substances in sight. But what happened here was that Lorenz uh, hired a laboratory and uh, tested uh, samples of this uh, very popular juice. And perfluoroalkyl substances were detected at a level more than a hundred times greater than the maximum suggested for drinking water by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. 
Now, exactly how these compounds come to be present uh, in the juice is not known. Of course, they're not added on purpose. Uh, maybe they come from tubing that is used in the machinery or lubricants. Uh, hard to know. At this point, there are no strict regulations about the maximum amount allowed in drinking water. But the suggestion is that the two most worrisome compounds, uh, PFOA and PFOS, and I'm sure you've seen them in news, uh, they should not exceed about four parts per trillion. That's a very, very small amount. A part per trillion is about one drop uh, in 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Now, concerns about these fluorinated chemicals hit the headlines back in 2016 when the New York Times magazine featured a story about the lawyer who became DuPont's worst nightmare. And that lawyer was Robert Billet, who in the early 2000s discovered that DuPont had been dumping these so-called forever chemicals, because they don't break down in the environment, into a landfill near its Parkersburg, West Virginia plant. And from there, they were seeping into the community's water supply. Well, Billet investigated all of this and um, discovered an unusually high incidence of various ailments in the area. And after much litigation, he secured a multi-million dollar settlement on behalf of the local citizens. And uh, you should watch the movie, Dark Waters. It's a 2019 movie, which tells the story in great detail. Anyway, over the last few years, Numerous studies have associated PFAS with birth defects, liver disease, thyroid problems, autoimmune disorders, hormonal disruption, elevated cholesterol, even cancer. Now, obviously, it goes without saying that an association is not the same as a cause and effect relationship. But nevertheless, uh, I think we have enough evidence uh, that we don't want these uh, chemicals, you know, in the environment, and we surely don't want them in our body, and we have them because uh, testing of blood shows that virtually everyone has some PFAS. Now, at what blood levels these chemicals present a risk is a subject of vigorous debate. But for sure, they're present in our bodies, not not doing us any good. Now, the lawsuit against Coca-Cola, which is the uh, maker of uh, of the uh, juice, uh, this lawsuit claims that consumers are being deceived and possibly being harmed by the presence of these perfluoroalkyl substances in a product that they may be purchasing specifically with the expectation of avoiding synthetic chemicals because it is clearly labeled as being natural. The use of filtered water implies that impurities have been removed, further boosting confidence in the safety of the product. And the suit alleges that since 2021, the company has been aware of the presence of PFAS in its beverages uh, because uh, they had been asked questions about some of their other products as possibly containing this. And in response to the, those allegations regarding the presence of PFAS in other beverages, a representative for the company reassured the public that it had made changes to its manufacturing process to avoid these chemicals because the safety and quality of its product is always their top priority. So now we have an interesting question here. Is this a frivolous lawsuit? There are lawsuits, as as you know, that are are launched. For example, law.
and seeing that uh, it's foot-long sandwich not exactly a foot long in length. Well, after some uh, some courtroom battles, uh, the suit was dismissed. Uh, there was also a suit against uh, uh, other companies like Red Bull, uh, suggesting that it had falsely advertised that the consumer would get wings after drinking it. Even figuratively speaking, the allegation was that this is not so because the drink doesn't energize anyone. And there actually there was, believe it or not, an out-of-court financial settlement. Anyway, those are kind of frivolous lawsuits. So is this one also a frivolous uh, uh, lawsuit? Well, given that uh, PFAS can be widely detected in our food and water, this simply tropical juice adds significantly to, to our body's burden. But that really isn't the point, is it? Consumers who buy a product labeled as natural and claiming to have nothing to hide can make a case for being deceived, especially if the producer is aware of the presence of chemicals that, if divulged, would prevent the consumer from purchasing the product. Since harm to the consumer is most unlikely, I think an outrageously large settlement in this case would be unsettling. But the lawsuit does serve the purpose of bringing more attention to the PFAS issue, and it will undoubtedly stimulate producers to enhance efforts to limit exposure to these forever chemicals. You're listening to Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Okay, uh, we do have an answer, sort of more, more or less correct to my question about the poison squad. Uh, Nick says that uh, they were looking for adulterated foods, uh, and additives and, you know, concerns about them. Yeah, that kind of is, uh, is correct, but, uh, let me give you the, the story. Uh, Back in the early 1900s, there was a real dust-up over ketchup, believe it or not, uh, particularly about uh, the preservative sodium benzoate that was at uh, that time used uh, to give ketchup a longer life. Well, the safety of preservatives and other additives today is the uh, subject of some lively debate, but hardly livelier than the acrimonious mudslinging between the pro- and anti-benzoate forces at the start of the 20th century. The anti-brigade was led by Dr. Harvey Wiley, who had graduated with a degree in medicine but never ended up practicing. His real love was chemistry. In 1874, Wiley became the first professor of chemistry at Purdue University, and later accepted a post as Indiana State Chemist. But it was his appointment in 1883 as Chief of the Division of Chemistry in the United States Department of Agriculture, which was the forerunner of the FDA, that thrust Dr. Wiley into the limelight. Food safety was Wiley's passion, and ketchup offered an easy target for his attacks. Tomato ketchup in those days was often adulterated with apple or pumpkin pulp, but that was not the major issue. It was the use of questionable preservatives and food colors, including the controversial coal tar dyes, uh, to which Wiley turned his attention. 
he enlisted a group of healthy young men, and these were dubbed the Poison Squad, to ingest increasing amounts of food additives while their health status was monitored. Boric acid and salicylic acid, which had been used as preservatives and ketchup, made them sick. But this didn't raise much of an issue because most producers had already replaced these chemicals with the apparently safer sodium benzoate. But when Wiley showed that his squad was also, quote, poisoned by the benzoate, the ketchup hit the fan. Wiley wanted benzoate, along with all other preservatives, banned. He maintained there was no need for these chemicals if manufacturers used quality food and good manufacturing practices. Many, but not all, producers retorted that Wiley did not know what he was talking about and that marketing ketchup without preservatives would put consumers at risk. Wiley found an unlikely ally in Henry J. Heinz, who had launched his brand of ketchup in 1876 with the slogan, Blessed Relief for Mother and the Other Women in the Household. Heinz maintained that if ripe tomatoes were used, then adequate preservation could be achieved through the addition of just salt, sugar, and vinegar. Heinz strongly supported Wiley's efforts at pure food legislation out of a mixture of idealism and marketing savvy. Selling pure ketchup, even if it costs more, would be good for business. The battle raged on, with producers claiming that Wiley's poison squat tests were unrealistic because of the amounts of benzoate used, and Wiley and supporters retorted that the callous use of this chemical was injurious to health. Finally, President Theodore Roosevelt stepped in and appointed a referee board headed by Professor Ira Remsen of Johns Hopkins University. In 1909, the board overruled Wiley, and stated that there was no evidence that sodium benzoate in quantities under half a gram a day was in any way deleterious. However, the board's decision did not silence the anti-benzoate forces, and Heinz even took out huge ads in newspapers informing the public that the American Medical Association in 1909 had adopted a position to urge Congress to ban benzoates. While the pro-benzoate forces had won the legal battle, Eventually, it was the marketplace that determined the overall winner. People voted with their wallets, preferring benzoate-free ketchup. By 1915, it had become clear that Heinz was right, that ketchup could be produced without benzoates, and other companies followed suit. Indeed, up to this day, uh, Heinz does not use uh, benzoate. Uh, if you look at the list of ingredients, they'll tell you that uh, their ketchup is made with organic tomato concentrate from red ripe organic tomatoes, uh, distilled vinegar, sugar, salt, onion powder, spices, natural flavorings. Uh, there is sugar, uh, not an insignificant amount. Uh, one tablespoon of uh, ketchup has about four grams of added sugar. Uh, so, you know, that has to be calculated into your daily uh, sugar intake because 
people do eat a fair amount of, of ketchup. Now, the fact is that benzoate is indeed not a, a dangerous additive, and it is still allowed as a preservative, but it is not uh, not very commonly uh, used anymore because there are other uh, better uh, preservatives uh, out there. And, uh, but it's interesting that, you know, we go back to, to, uh, those early days of the 1900s when there were battles about, um, additives in food, very much like we have today. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, some of those have still not been resolved because there still are, are people who have concerns, especially, you know, about artificial sweeteners and, and azodicarbonamide, which you may remember was the chemical that the food babe, Vanny Harry, attacked. And, uh, eventually Subway caved in and took it out of their food. It's a, it's a dough conditioning agent, which is, uh, by all research that we know, harmless. Uh, but you know these these kind of controversies uh, still uh, go on uh, to this day. We live in a world of controversies uh, these days, uh, don't we? I mean, uh, you know, I told you about the movie that we're going to to um, uh, to show on May 11th. Again, let me remind you: you can just go to our website, which is mcgill.ca/oss, May 11th, and all you have to do is register. And you'll be treated not only to the film, but to a vibrant discussion after that I will moderate. And uh, we have uh, invited the two producers of the movie. And, you know, we will learn about how movies are made and why they made uh, this film, why they thought that it was important to show the science behind vaccines and uh, to do this in a proper, objective, scientific way. Uh, so I, I think that you will find it uh, very interesting. In uh, 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 yesterday's uh, paper uh, in the Gazette, I, I in my usual column, I did speak about the St. Louis World's Fair of uh, 1904, and uh, ketchup did play an important role in that World's Fair because uh, there was an exhibit in the Palace of Agriculture where they did talk about food additives and um, about how some foods were adulterated and the demonstrator showed how a brand of ketchup not not Heinz ketchup uh, was actually colored with synthetic dyes with coal tar dyes and they frightened the public by showing how they could extract this coal tar dye from the ketchup and use it to color a piece of uh, of flannel so it was, uh, you know, quite a, a frightening demo at that time. And it made people aware of, you know, some of the concerns. And that is it for today. We have run out of time. And um, hopefully you learned something here today, learned something about tetrodotoxin. Uh, you learned something about these perfluoroalkyl substances. And also you had a bit of a biblical lesson on the origin of Passover. So to all of our uh, Jewish listeners who are getting ready to celebrate uh, Passover uh, on uh, on Wednesday, uh, happy Passover. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Till then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>